right, in case you've noticed, uh, California, the Central Valley seems to be swarming with butterflies at present. It's been doing so for the past couple of weeks, so we thought we would ask an expert what's going on. And on the phone now, we have Dr. Arthur Shapiro, professor of evolution and ecology here at UC Davis, who is noted for being an authority on butterflies. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Shapiro. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, is this something extraordinary going on? I don't recall ever seeing butterflies streaming through the valley like we have at present. The migration itself is a regular seasonal event that happens every year, but it's usually not noticeable because the numbers are so much smaller. This year, we have at least a thousand times more than average, perhaps even more than that, and you can't help but notice them, especially when they collide with your windshield. <laughs> yes. I, I had an unfortunate experience while riding my motorcycle a couple days back. Okay. They seem to all be headed, to my mind, from, from east to west. Is that about right? At the moment, that's correct. For the first three weeks of the migration, they were almost all headed southeast to northwest. Now they're headed almost due east to west. You're quite correct. Huh. People were asking me, is this, is this the monarch? And... and um, I, uh, being being a UCD biology major, I got out my Golden Nature Guide book of insects and took a look. I was trying to find some that were that were occupying themselves on flowers long enough to be identified, and and I was proud to come up with Painted Lady as the answer. Painted Lady is correct. <laughs> Over the head of the class. <laughs> These butterflies don't cause any economic damage, I, I, I suppose. No, they breed on various wild plants, and in this part of the world, they breed almost exclusively on weeds, which themselves may cause some economic damage, so to a very minor degree, they may even be advantageous. Um, they do breed on a couple of specialty herb crops that are sometimes raised commercially, specifically borage and comfrey. Hmm. And I noticed the female laying eggs on a comfrey plant in the Experimental College Gardens today. But um, that's a very trivial economic impact unless it's your borage or your comfrey. I, I can't say I'm familiar with borage or comfrey. Those, those are herbs used in cooking? or They're used in cooking in the case of comfrey as a medicinal herb. I was kind of curious. The, the, the butterflies that I saw that stopped long enough to get a gander at them were stopping on what looked to be like wild radish plants. Were they just? Uh, yeah, they're taking nectar from wild radish quite commonly. That's true. They'll they'll pretty much take whatever comes their way. They all take nectar from a great variety of flowers. They also are much more generalized in the range of plants on which they'll lay eggs than most butterflies. That's one of the things that contributes to this great abundance. They lay eggs on. Oh, plants of at least 15 different families, which is quite unusual. But the, the favorite families for egg laying are thistles, mallows, and the borage family, which includes the common weed fiddleneck. They are presumably all headed for some rendezvous in the coast range. They're headed as far as their fat deposits <laughs> will take them. They were born in the desert somewhere along the U.S.-Mexico border, all of them. And they're born with about a week's supply of yellow fat, which you have seen if they hit your windshield, because it looks like a pad of butter hit at high velocity. Right. 
And as long as they're burning fat, they don't have to stop to uh, take nectar from flowers. They can migrate continuously if weather permits. So they go until they run out of fat, and at that point they become sedentary, they begin visiting flowers, and they begin mating and laying eggs. So depending on where they originated and how long it took them to get here due to weather, um, that fat deposit may be enough to get them to your backyard, or it might be enough to get them to Corvallis, Oregon. And we got a report this morning that the leading edge of the migration has now reached Washington State. Wow. The, uh, the little golden guide shows them up across the Canadian border, too. They just keep going up to Vancouver if they can make it? Yeah, the next generation, that is the butterflies that develop from the eggs that they're laying right now on thistles around here, will pick up as soon as they hatch and fly north, and they'll breed in Oregon, Washington, and B.C. The uh, migration progresses northward in waves. So they're pretty much uh, doing the stopping and doing their thing, reproducing, and then heading either north or south as the season dictates. Yeah, well, once an individual has uh, shot its wad on egg laying, it will die. But the next generation will move north in the spring, and then beginning in August and extending through October, there is a generalized movement southward back toward the desert for the winter. How many generations go, do they manage in a year? Oh, four or five, depending on the year. So this is probably generation number one, number two? This is generation one. Generation two will hatch locally in May and fly north and so on. About number three, they'll start the process in reverse, and number five winds up somewhere near the Mexican border. Right. Okay. And much of the movement south is on the east side of the Sierra Nevada, so... The optimum time to see them migrating southward is around, oh, say, the 5th of October when they visit rabbit brush flowers on the east side as they move down essentially parallel to 395. I would imagine that's somewhat more of a narrow corridor than, than the migration west. Um, well, some of them come south on this side of the mountains, too, but they're not usually very conspicuous compared to the numbers that go down on the east side. Well, I would imagine if this if this bumper crop continues, then in October it might be quite a spectacular show going going east and, and south. Well, the numbers the numbers always go down, and these outbreak years almost always this brood, the migratory brood, in late winter, early spring is the real big one, and subsequent mm. generations are smaller. All kinds of mortality factors kick in. The, the explosion of adults is basically the result of the usual mortality factors not kicking in. It was just an exceptional year to be a painted lady in the desert. So every generation is a roll of the dice. That's right. Um, does this anything, does anything to do with global warming? It's just the fact this was an unusually wet year in Southern California, record-setting year? Yeah, the, the uh, abundant rains in the desert are the root cause of the outbreak, clearly. They produce the bumper crop of the host plants on which the butterflies breed. And when we saw the uh, rainfall data coming in for Southern California and the border region, butterfly people began predicting this outbreak all the way back around Christmas. We expected it. How does this compare, like, to the, the, the biology of, like, the monarchs, which seem to, which are famous for their congregation in a couple places? The monarchs 
are relatively staid and conservative by comparison, although their numbers fluctuate wildly too. They never undergo really huge outbreaks like this. Their, their population fluctuations are more damped out. Oh, they're middle American in their tastes compared to painted <laughs> ladies. Sort of f- more fastidious or... or Oh, just generally more conservative. They, you know, the red state, blue state thing. Um, I'll just mention that painted ladies do the same thing in the old world. This species also occurs in the old world. And they spend the winter on the south side of the Mediterranean in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, the Negev of Israel, uh, the Arabian Peninsula. They breed in the desert following the winter rains just like they do here and then when the butterflies hatch around this time of the year they fly across the Mediterranean and colonize Europe the dynamics are exactly the same and presumably this has been going on for millions of years not something because man brought painted ladies over well that's an interesting subject because we don't really know for sure whether painted ladies are native in the Americas Hmm. it was suggested way back in the 19th century by none other than the, the great natural historian and geologist Louis Agassiz, who more or less discovered the Ice Age, that painted ladies were introduced by Europeans when they colonized America. But he made the suggestion not based on biological data, but based on his religious beliefs, which led him to think that God would not create the same species on more than one continent. <laughs> Interesting. Indeed. Anyway, we have done some um, genetics years ago and found that we couldn't differentiate between French painted ladies and California painted ladies. Which I presume would would indicate that perhaps they were introduced. It's possible, but unless we do some much more sophisticated DNA sequencing, I don't know if we can answer that question. It's an interesting question. Do you, uh, you, you've been collecting butterflies for, for quite some time. I've been studying butterflies for over 40 years, yeah. Do you, do you have a favorite? Probably the Mariposa Plateada of the southern cone of South America, which is a, an all-iridescent silver butterfly that looks like a silver dollar flying over the Buntgrass Steppe in Patagonia. Wow. I happened to find myself in, in Madagascar many years ago, and a butterfly flew into the room that had these tails on it that must have been 10 inches long. It was, it was quite stunning. Um, what color was the animal? Uh, kind of a greenish. Uh, you're sure it was a butterfly, not a moth? No, I, and actually, I'm, I'm quite sure it was a moth. Oh, okay. There is a, a very beautiful tailed moth. It's sort of a yellow color called Argumamitrii from uh, Madagascar. It has tails about three inches long. Yeah, this was qu- this was quite spectacular, and I my 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 sound engineer is, is 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 mouthing to me, "What's the difference, moth and butterfly?" Perhaps we should clarif- clarify that one for the audience. That's actually not an easy question because all of the criteria that are typically given in popular books for telling them apart have exceptions. The technical answer is that if it belongs to the superfamilies Papillionoidea or Hesperioidea, it's a butterfly, and if it doesn't, but it's a Lepidopteran, it's a moth by definition. So being a moth is not defined by any specific properties. It means being a member of the order Lepidoptera that isn't a butterfly. Put that in your smoking pipe. Holy mackerel. (laughs) 
Is it is it fair to say if it's at night, it's generally a moth? If it's daytime, it's generally a butterfly? Except when it isn't. <laughs> well, Dr. Shapiro, we appreciate very much for talking a bit about this remarkable display of nature going on all around us. Well, let me encourage people to go out and observe them. They're very easy to approach when they're feeding, and it's remarkably easy to get striking photographs of them, especially now with digital photography. So let me encourage people to go out and do that. And also, it's very easy uh, and will be for the next few weeks to find eggs and caterpillars. So if you want to teach your, uh, your little nephew about complete metamorphosis, now is the time to do it. Well, we'll, we're, we'll try and do that. I, I did uh, try and take my neighbor's youngsters over to take a look at the uh, the plants where I'd spotted the butterflies uh, idling, but uh, when we went back the next day, they were apparently elsewhere. Well, they come and they go, but until the desert empties out, there will be more. I just got a report this evening of large numbers of them coming over the grapevine from Southern California, so they should be here about Wednesday. And is it a good time to go down to Death Valley? I've heard that's quite a, putting on quite a show. Is that still still there? I think it's the, the flowers should be starting to fade by now, and the butterflies should be emptying out. It's probably still worth going, and at least there aren't as many people there now as there were before. But I don't think the show is anything like what it was during spring break. Oh. Well, Dr. Shapiro, hopefully you can come back and educate us again. This was fun. Well, I enjoyed it, too. Have a good evening. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Joining us now on the program is Judy Rosenblum, the ex-wife of our Hollywood correspondent, David Rosenblum. Welcome, Judy. It's my pleasure. Well, now, Judy, David hasn't been on our show for well over a year at this point. Hi. My ex has not been a lot of places for over a year now. Mm. The bank comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, r- rumors had, had him killed in that Southeast Asian tsunami. Dead, no, but he doesn't get back soon. I might kill him. But he was in Sri Lanka during their disaster. Yes, and he is still there, adding to their disaster. But he's all right. Define all right. Alive and well. Alive, yes. Well is more a matter of opinion, but don't get me started on that. Well, when did you two last communicate? When he got out from under house arrest. He was under arrest? And he calls me to tell me my alimony will be late. Can you believe that? Yes, but what happened? Hi, David gets a free trip to Sri Lanka after booking a Tamil tiger. It's a long story. He's thinking Siegfried and Roy. It's so wrong. Anyway, he's 80 feet down under, and the wave clobbers him. He, he was scuba diving. David loved those Jacques Cousteau specials. We'd watch all those fish and squid and then go out and have sushi or fried clams. When Lloyd Bridges passed away, Bo gave the old man sea hunt tanks to David. Lloyd taught David to swim, you know. We, we didn't know. David loved sitting at the bottom of pools. He'd go to Red Skelton's. It relaxed him, he would say. But he always wanted to dive in the actual sea, like Lloyd. So he's finally 80 feet down in the salt water of the Indian Ocean when the wave knocks the hell out of him. Uh, he must have been quite stunned. No, he said he didn't even know anything odd had happened. Really? What does he know? He figured they just took him to a bad spot. He surfaces and starts yelling at the boatman. For help? No, a refund. Uh, so then what? There's this act of God provision in his travel insurance. They won't fly him home. Well, did he try arguing that it wasn't an act of God? Oh, he tried. Didn't work. But while arguing, he hears that the titanium has washed up. Well, now we read about that. Some titanium ore, I guess, came in with the wave. 
know, and David, of course, borrows some relief funds, figures with a mining consortium, everyone in the coastal village can profit. A mining consortium. It takes money to make money, right? Well, that's what they say. If they sell the titanium ore, they can rebuild that much faster. Or so we can imagine David trying to convince the local mayor. Exactly. Till the mayor, of course, reads the fine print. Then it's house arrest. Wow. Oh, the Red Cross wants their money back. The mayor can't find it. David has switched bank account numbers. Well, really, it sounds like a mess, Judy. Uh, how, how, how are his Hollywood clients doing? And then he has the nerve to ask me to help him manage them while he sorts this mess out. Do you, do you have any talent agency experience? Well, actually, I do. I worked for Bookham and Burnham for years. So, so which of his clients are you helping? I got Carrot Top, uh, some Indian casino gigs. The Carrot Top? Absolutely. Hmm. I see. I'm getting all his guys' Indian casino bookings. Gary Coleman, Yahoo Serious, Jim Belushi. Well, now, what do you book James Belushi to do? James is John Belushi's brother. And? And John did the Blues Brothers thing, remember? Saturday Night Live. Yeah, the, the, the Blues Brothers. That was John Belushi. They were actual brothers, you know, John and Jim. So, so what does Jim do? He has many Belushi-esque qualities, Doug. Well, I, I would think, yeah. He does a musical-type act thing. You know, you squint and you can almost imagine that it's John. I, I'm, I'm not sure my eyes are that bad, Judy. Squint! Oh, did I ever tell you how I met my ex? I, I, I don't know that we have time for that today. Let me just give you the short version. He had animal acts once, you know? Rin Tin Tin, Benji, Francis the Talking Mule, all of them. Okay. But animals don't live so long. He soon had a stable of deceased clients. Mm -hmm. So he decides to start a tour of star cemeteries. Like in Hollywood, do we get the tour bus to go see like where Fatty Arbuckle's buried, things like that? Yeah, only for animal movie stars. Lassie's Tomb, Mr. Ed's Mausoleum. I met him on his tour. For the finale, he takes a boat off Santa Monica to the burial at seaside of Flippa. Well, how romantic, Judy. Oh, tell me. I married the guy 17 days later. Interesting. Never do that, by the way. Well, we won't. <laughs> when David calls me, I can update you. Well, when he does, please do. Meanwhile, ever hear Jim Belushi's impressions? Uh, no. You should hear his Donald Rumsfeld. Um, why should we? You'd swear Rummy is in the room. Judy, we're going to pass on that one. And he does this thing where he first does a Monty Hall, then Arsenio Hall. I say we don't make a deal. Was that a joke? It was a very bad one, and we got to go. So, Judy, please come again. I would love to. Our thanks to film historian David Keene, UC Davis professor Arthur Shapiro, and, of course... Judy Rosenblum. We'll see you again next Thursday at 5 o'clock, at which time we'll be in the middle of our Pledge Drive week here at KDVS, and this will be our annual Pledge Drive show. It takes a lot of money to run a station like this. We need your support, and we hope that you will, uh, will give generously. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and this, of course, is Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for Todd.